Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Pastor Brad Gray. I serve as the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church in Paxinos, Pennsylvania. Uh, and this is just a show I do on a semi-weekly basis where I seek to uh, engage with some uh, things that I've been learning, things that I've been studying, and hopefully uh, further encourage you uh, in the precious faith that we have in the gospel of Christ crucified. Uh, most of the time, uh, what I do here is just uh, speak to you uh, regarding some things that I wasn't able to fit into uh, sermons or various lessons that I've been studying. It's just extra stuff that I hope that you can benefit from and that I hope that you can uh, derive some uh, some great encouragement from. And, uh, and hopefully you're really finding these episodes encouraging. Uh, that's my hope. That's my prayer. That's that's my only desire uh, through this uh, little show is to do just that, encourage you in your faith. Uh, and boy, I think, do we need a lot of encouragement? <laughs> um, I have just felt like I've been on a broken record uh, over the last several weeks and months uh, regarding where most of my sermons or writings or anything like that has tended towards, namely uh, the fact uh, that I have found so much hope and comfort and benefit from the truth, the, dare I use this big word, the indefatigable truth that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Messiah, uh, King over all, King of kings, Lord of all, and the Savior that we need. Um, and I think that that's a, a, a great uh, truth to c kind of find rest in. Um, and such so is what I kind of want to do through the the next few minutes, is just kind of show, uh, or at least kind of hopefully expound upon the idea that he is the king of history, uh, the governor of all of our days, uh, by examining a sermon I preached uh, a few weeks ago and just kind of expounding upon that a little bit. And hopefully you'll find some encouragement out of this episode, and and uh, that's, my, that's my desire. So uh, without further ado, let me just uh, share a quick word from the sponsor for the Ministry Minded Podcast, uh, and then uh, we'll just jump right in. So here's here's the word from our sponsor. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. 
They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee soon after moving to Central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or pour over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. So a few weeks ago, uh, this was be now uh, the 18th of April, um, I preached in the Sunday morning service on 1 Kings chapter 11. Now, if you are if you're a member of Stonington uh, and you're listening to this show, you likely uh, are familiar with what I've been going through. If you're not a member of Stonington, just a little quick uh, sort of introduction to uh, what this is and, and, and why I think it's important. Uh, I, so I've been going through the book of First Kings, and, and well, I'm going to, going to go through First and Second Kings, but I'm in the middle of this series um, on the books of the kings, and I use this sermon on the 18th of April, uh, focus, and I focused in on just chapter 11. So I'd been doing various sermons through, uh, predominantly 1 Kings 4 through 11, which is all about the reign of King Solomon and sort of how it declines, how it leads to the point where he goes from, in chapter 3 of 1 Kings, being blessed and uh, given just such tremendous blessing by God, uh, by God himself, to at the beginning of 1 Kings 11, where it says that God is angry with him. So uh, basically what I think we see is this downward trajectory, not necessarily in just things that Solomon is entertaining, although that is true, but also just a downward trajectory in terms of Solomon's uh, dependence. So basically we could say it's an upward trajectory of Solomon's independence and that the longer that Solomon reigned, there was this view almost that he was the king that was making the world turn. Uh, and I think that this is the predominant thing that I saw out of these chapters is just that very thing, that that Solomon was wrestling with the idea that he, the one who had been gifted wisdom, wisdom, had suddenly sort of become the one who was wisdom. And the more that he was uh, sought after to give a, a wise word or an insight into life, um, he suddenly became the one who uh, could um, basically be relied upon, and therefore he didn't have to rely on anyone himself. Um, and so we come to that point in chapter 11. So chapter 11 is the story sort of, of, of God's words of warning to Solomon, uh, regarding the rupture that's about to happen, that is going to take place, uh, in the aftermath of, of his reign. Once he passes off the scene, there's going to be a great divide of his kingdom and all of the glory, all of the splendor that, that Solomon had amassed as as one of Israel's most promised kings is going to be for naught because of 
of his plunge into corruption. Uh, and such is what this chapter records for us. It records uh, this uh, really <clears throat> sour note of decadence after a story of great promise. Uh, and I find that that's really interesting because this is really where the turn happens. Um, as I've been examining, studying, and expounding upon this book, it's been interesting to at least to me, to see how positive the historian's view was of Solomon up until this point. And in fact, from chapters 3 through 10, he hasn't really said a negative word about Solomon. Uh, and I say that because many times uh, our views of King Solomon are very much um, uh, colored by what we know about him, uh, colloquially through perhaps his writings in Ecclesiastes and his reputation for uh, for being a very hedonistic king and leader. Leader. Um, but what, uh, but, uh, so I say that because, uh, we need to see that there was a great blessing that had, that had been given to Solomon. And it's important to see that because it's that blessing that was almost, uh, demeaned and disdained by the fact that Solomon thought, I think that Solomon thought that he had, he was the one that was almost responsible for that. And such is what happens at the end where now in chapter 11 from a guy, well, let me back up from a guy in chapter three who had sought after God alone and had asked for nothing but God's wisdom. God gave him a blank check, ask for anything you like. And Solomon says, I want your wisdom. I want your judgment. I want your insight. And so from that guy all the way to chapter 11, we get this guy who is now entertaining other gods. And in fact, the first nine verses, it talks about the fact that he was not just entertaining other gods. He was entertaining uh, marriages and relationships with <laughs> thousands of other women. And he was basically not just entering into relationship with them, but he was also uh, housing their gods as a part of his sort of uh, spirituality, his uh, the, the types of gods that he would entertain and, and, and worship. So he was making these other gods almost equal with God. And what a demeaning thing that is. Uh, this is something that <laughs> Solomon was everywhere warned about uh, in chapters 2 and 3 and 6 and 9. He was warned over and over again, hey, don't leave the ways of God. Follow in your father David's footsteps. Follow uh, the commandments of God. He was warned over and over and over again, and yet what do we see Solomon chose to go after this. He willingly made the decision to that led to the ruin of this kingdom that he was charged to lead. And these gods um, that he was worshiping, they, they twisted his heart from the love of the one true God alone to the, to the love of other gods. And so this is what makes God angry here. And we see that when... <laughs> When over the course of this chapter, that when God is is angry, this this sort of fuming righteousness that he has towards Solomon, he takes matters into his own hands and intervenes in a very, very obvious way. And so this is what happens. What I love about this chapter is, is what we what we see through the course of this. So God 
assures Solomon, hey, judgment is coming. Uh, after you pass away, he says in verses 9 through through 13, I'm going to take the kingdom out of your hand. Take is actually too soft of a word. He says, I'm going to tear. I'm going to rend it out of your hand. I'm going to, I'm going to rip up into shreds the kingdom that you had built. I'm going to give it to your servant, to, uh, to your son. Um, and then we have even more sort of evidences of God's warning, uh, to Solomon through the course of three different individuals that it talks about. It talks about this guy named Hadad, the Edomite, in verses 14 down through verse 22 of 1 Kings 11. And then it talks about this guy, Rezon, um, uh, who in verses 23 through 25. And then in verses 26 through basically verse 40, it talks about uh, this guy named Jeroboam. And so through these three individuals, conflicts was suddenly stirred up in uh, Solomon's kingdom. So the guy who was, you know, the the king who had ushered in this incredible reign of peace uh, was suddenly in in conflict, in, in, in tension with these individuals. Hadad was a guy who was sort of harassing Solomon from the south, Rezon from the north, and Jeroboam from Solomon's own temple court. So we have this through the course of this narrative, we see here that God is using um, individuals from within and without Solomon's own life to bring him to a point where he ought to have seen. He ought to have seen that this is this is God's doings with the world in order to bring him to repentance. Because, and I say that because there's this phrase that that happens in verse uh, fourteen and in verse twenty three, uh, where it talks about how. Well, let me let, let me read it to you. Verse fourteen, and the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon, verse 23, and the Lord God stirred him up another adversary. So it's it's God doing these things. It's God intervening in history in order to uh, have these, these men sort of be reminded of their jealousy, their hatred, their, their vitriol for Solomon to bring on Solomon some very obvious disciplinary measures. It wasn't just random that these guys decided, hey, let's, let's uh, align ourselves together and go and, uh, and annoy the crap out of Solomon. It was the fact that God was doing this. He was trying to get Solomon's attention. And what does Solomon do? Verse 40, he just sees this as another attack, an attempt at taking away his throne. So again, we see that this God is sovereign over history. He's sovereign over the movings and the turnings of this world. He is the one who is bending all of it to his will. And you, you see, this is the, the whole point that I was striving to make through that sermon is just this, that all of nature and history bows and bends to the will of this God, who is the king of kings and the governor of history and the ruler of the raging seas. This is what we see uh, evidenced through this. We see that he is using history to further his purposes of redemption. Yes, even through this moment, he was going to show them just how great of a God he is by bringing a light out of this incredibly dark season of history. Um, I, I love this fact. I love this point. It's one that we ought to rest on. 
that there's this God of history who is revealing himself through the historical narratives. And such is one of the points that I'm, I, I want to make, uh, want to make today is just this, that scripture has two authors. I know it's it's written by a ton of men, um, and, and, and based on your views of canonicity or whatever, it, it might have more than that. But Scripture basically has two planes of authorship. It has human authors who were there, who are then inspired by God to write their the words that they wrote down on parchment and was preserved uh, for us even today. But there's a divine author. And what I mean by that, you can just see that from even a book like Kings. And just the, the, and what I mean by that is that what's included is divine. What's not included is also divine. So the fact that the historian of Kings, uh, sort of glosses over or skips over por- certain portions of history evidences the fact that there is a divine author who is working in order to show through the course of this history what it is that he wants to show. Namely, he wants to show uh, how he can redeem and who he is going to redeem and, 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 and the method of that redemption. I think this is one of the things that's so important to keep in mind is that, yes, these are books written by men, but they are books written by men who are inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they are also books written by men who are inspired by the Holy Spirit according to a divine plan of God. What they recorded was uh, given to them by God himself in order to show a really important point that he is the divine author and also he is the divine point of it all. I think you can see this so clearly through the book of Kings that what's included there is for us to see that there's a God behind it all. There is a, there is an authority behind all of these words of scripture, all of these events of history. There is one who is keeping it all in the balance. And I would say that the discipline of studying your Bible is keeping this in view. Keeping this thing in view, keeping the, quote, human context and the divine context in view at the same time. And actually, that leads me to one of the most helpful articles I've read recently. It's entitled, How to Read the Bible in Context and Stay on Track. And it was written by Daniel Rollins, who I, I'm not very familiar with, um, but I love this article. In fact, I'm going to read you an excerpt from it. So this is written by Daniel, quote, In each place, there is the immediate context, but there is a broader context, the context of the entire revelation of God contained in the Bible. There are different human authors, yet there is one divine author, God himself. There is an immediate context, and there is an overall biblical context, the overarching story of God's mighty acts of redemption in Christ Jesus. As Christ Jesus, he continues, is indivisibly and inseparably divine and human, so scripture is harmoniously divine and human. Each human author, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, had his particular context, but it came within the overarching context of the divine author, God himself. Writing in the circumstances, in the idiom of their time and place, the prophets communicated the word of God, yet through these men, God was telling his story, his mighty acts of creation and redemption, his overarching context and story, in the big picture of the entire canon of scripture, end quote. 
I love what Daniel is here saying because it's so it, it's imperfectly uh, sort of it's it's melodious with all of scripture and what I'm trying to sort of get at here is that yes there is a local historical context that is unique to individual authors at individual times and places within human history but even broader than that each one of these stories is given to us for the purposes of revealing God's Context, God's uh, divine purposes and plans and story for this world. So what we have then is even more significant than we could ever imagine. Because what we have is very much intricately woven into God's plans for this life, for this world. And of course, the link of it all, the link of all of these things is Christ himself. He's the tie, the, the knot that binds the testaments together. He's, as it says in 2 Corinthians 1, he is their yes and amen. Daniel goes on to say in that same article, quote, Therefore, remembering that Scripture is the word of God, which he has spoken and which has been written down by humans and inspired by the Holy Spirit. We read this word considering both the immediate context of the human writers and the unifying context of the divine author. This is not an either-or argument, but is both and, human and divine. It is God's word, his divine revelation to us and received by us through his instrument of human writers. I'm so thankful for this reflection just because I think it is in so it is so vastly important to keep this in view that the scriptures that you have in front of you aren't sort of accidental they aren't sort of uh, there by happenstance they are there by divine inspiration for divine purpose to reveal the overarching point of all of this it's Jesus He's, he's the one that makes sense, that, that, by which we can make sense of all of this. And you know, this has long been uh, my conviction. Actually, it's one of the convictions that I've really been striving to sort of double down on. Is just the fact that when we read the scriptures, we are reading a story, not a manual of morals not a a uh, divine self-help book that was inspired by certain people. It's not a, a recipe book for better spiritual living or spirituality or uh, or anything like that. It's not a book of virtues. It's not uh, the Bible is not a, a divine Aesop's fables. This book, all 66 of its books <laughs> tell the story of one book, namely the story of one person, and his name is Jesus. This makes everything uh, open up. And in fact, this is, this is not something that I'm making up. This is, of course, something that has been uh, definitely hammered home in recent years, but also has been hammered home by Christ himself. In, I, I would say, we could say jokingly, the best Bible study that ever happened was the Bible study that Christ himself led with his apostles and disciples in the hours after his resurrection. 
This comes from Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Jesus said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then it says, Opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. This is the point of it all. <laughs> that namely, Jesus is the point of it all. He's, he's the one that echoes throughout history. He is the prevailing point of this epic story of the Bible that even in the time of King Solomon's decadent rebellion and rejection of God, there was a king over it all who was overriding and overseeing all of those days of history in order to bring about his purposes. And yes, even right now, in our current moment, there is still that king who is on his throne ruling and reigning. We see this through the Bible, and we see this evidence in our own lives, that there is a king over it all, and his name is Jesus. <laughs> He's the point of this scripture, and he is the point of all of life to see that he is the one in whom all things have their sustenance, have their equilibrium, have their balance, have their steadfastness. It is Jesus himself. I cannot recommend to you enough uh, studying out this sort of point, this hermeneutical point, the way to interpret the Bible is to see Christ in all of its pages, in all of the shadows and the nooks and crannies of your Bible, you will find Jesus' blood. Because that's sort of the point of it all. <laughs> Not sort of, that is the point of it all. And in fact, let me recommend to you two other articles, which I'll link in the notes for the show. Uh, both of them, uh, are you can find over at the Gospel Coalition. The first is written by Davy Ellison, entitled Seeing Christ in the Shape of the Psalms. And he does a great job at, at sort of proving and showing that the Psalms aren't just random uh, sort of ancient Israelite hymns. They are uh, focused in sort of showing that there is a king, a new Davidic king, i.e. Christ, who was above it all. And then Matt Smethurst, he does a great job in, the, in an article entitled, Your Whole Bible is About Jesus, to make the same point. That there is one point of Scripture, namely the Savior, <laughs> namely Jesus Christ. He's the governor of all history and the God of all grace. And may we see him, not just in the Bible, but may we see him at work in our own lives, ruling and reigning over our days. I hope that reflection encourages you, um, as it has encouraged me, uh, just to know that that is true, and there's never been a time when that's not true, and there's never going to be a time when that's not true. Uh, so, God bless you there. Hopefully that helps you. Take advantage of those articles. I know you'll be encouraged by them. Uh, just a few other segments of today's show. Uh, what am I reading? Well, I just finished, and I'm about to write a review for uh, Succeeding at Seminary, uh, written by the seminary professor of the seminary that I attend, Dr. Jason K. Allen. And I know it's going to sound a little bit incestuous <laughs> for me to write a review by the president of the seminary that I'm attending that's 
uh, and it's a book all about why you should attend seminary and how you should be and how you can be successful at it. Um, but I assure you that my review won't be biased, or at least too biased, <laughs> uh, towards uh, towards the way that Dr. Allen writes. But I was really thankful for that article, or excuse me, for that book uh, that they sent me, and it's actually provided a lot of practical, helpful. Uh, insights into seminary and not just the practicality, but the theology behind seminary and uh, why it's important. So uh, definitely um, if you are thinking about seminary at all or anything like that, that's definitely a book to uh, pick up and read. Um, I'm also in the middle of reading um, a book by Dow, D-A-U, called Luther Reimagined. Uh, so it's really just a re not a re-envisioning, sort of like a biography. It's a half biography, half sort of apology for Martin Luther and the Reformation doctrines that he propounded uh, through, of course, what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. And basically what he's doing, what Dow is doing, is taking Catholic, Roman Catholic sort of remarks against Luther and his legacy and sort of... Uh, deconstructing those remarks and explaining uh, what Luther's motivations were and how they are based on Scripture. They're not based on Luther's brashness or or Luther's arrogance or anything like that, um, but they're actually just, they're actually based on on the Bible. And he makes it very clear that that all throughout what Luther was doing, he was, he was just propound, he was just proposing a recovery of Bible doctrine. So, I'm really thankful for that. Um, I'm really thankful for this book. It's really helpful, and it's helpful to get further insights into Luther. If you've listened to me or or you've read uh, me at all or heard any of my sermons, you know that one of my favorite theological minds that I can ever go to as a re- resource is Luther. Uh, and so, speaking of which, last week, of course, was the anniversary of Martin Luther's infamous stand at the Diet of Worms, uh, the 500th anniversary of that moment where he, you know, supposedly, as legend has it, said, here I stand, I can do no other, in terms of standing for the truth of the gospel in the face of this trial that was uh, causing and encouraging him to denounce the faith. And I think there's much that we can glean from that moment, even still in our own day. Yes, even 500 years later, after that moment of Luther's infamous stand, we can still learn a lot from it. Which leads me to another article I want to share with you, uh, entitled "Lessons from Luther's Stand at Worms, 500 Years Ago Today." Uh, this was sort of compiled by the Gospel Coalition. has great insights from a lot of different uh, theological minds. Uh, but I loved this line or these lines from Carl Truman in that article, in which he says, "This Luther's stand was not a career move." nor was it an attempt to draw attention to himself. It was the only response he could give, knowing all that he knew, in a situation in which he would not have chosen to place himself. (laughs) So, maybe he didn't say, here I stand, I can do no other. Uh, Maybe he did. But regardless, it was sort of the preeminent theme of this moment, that, that based on his study of Scripture, he could not do anything else but stand for where he was and for what he was standing for, namely the truth of the gospel of grace, that it is God's righteousness which saves and not ours ourselves. He wasn't jockeying for position. He was basing this on the conviction that Scripture was the lone authority of all truth and spiritual matters. So then, 
what do I want to leave you with? What you should remember is just that. That like Luther, we too ought to stand with consciences bound to the truth of Scripture. Stand ready to point to Jesus. Stand in the true grace of God, knowing that He is standing with us and for us. We're not there by ourselves. We're not there uh, alone. We are there with no less than the words of Christ for us and with us. Therefore, that's what our mission is. To stand pointing to this Jesus, who is the point of all Scripture. He is the Word of God in the flesh. The Word of God dwelling and condescended to us, for us. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Ministry Minded Podcast. I hope and I pray that you've been blessed by this episode. It's so fun to put these episodes together. So hopefully you have likewise found them encouraging and fun and, and enriching to your faith. So thank you as always for supporting this podcast through just uh, subscribing and, and liking and commenting on various ways and, and sharing too. If you feel that, please share this episode with your friends, with your family. I would thank you and appreciate you very much for for that. But thank you just as always for sending your encouraging notes and letters. Uh, may God bless you this day and I'll see you on the next episode. Blessings.